You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Please return to your seats and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning's New Testament scripture reading is from Luke 1, verses 5 through 24. If you don't have a Bible, please take one home with you as a gift from Trinity. Luke 1, 5 through 24. These are the words of God. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man." And my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. These will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. This morning's Old Testament scripture is from Micah 1. Then 
The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of the people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Bethlehem. Roll yourselves in the dust, pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zeanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Azel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Meroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds of the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughters of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Achzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will bring again against you a conqueror, inhabitants of Merashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, with the promise of your coming comes the warning of judgment. Far too often we've overlooked your judgment, seeking to simply meditate on pleasant things. But God, your judgment is the basis of your grace. The coming to destroy wickedness is the evidence of your mercy. And so Lord, I pray that this advent will be marked by a robust celebration of the light coming in the midst of darkness and all that that entails. So help us now to hear the word from Micah, to heed its warnings, to tremble before its judgments, and to cling to its hope. In your name we pray, amen. There is at the heart of this text this devastating 
declaration about the world. In verse nine, for her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. The heart of Micah declares a kind of darkness, a darkness that's unpleasant, a darkness that's devastating, and a darkness that may sound odd to us um, as you're trying to consider why on earth did this particular preacher decide that Micah was a good place to go during the season of Advent. It's become popular in recent decades that the themes for study during Advent would be hope, love, joy, and peace. What many people don't realize is that this is actually a um, historical novelty. The history of Advent um, in the church was centered on the study of these four themes, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Advent was the season in the church calendar where the church began to reflect upon last things. And so we come to the book of Micah and we consider the darkness into which the light has come. That we consider the full range of what God has accomplished in the coming of Jesus. And so that, be, that, that forces us to begin where Micah begins. Namely, with a word of judgment. A warning about what God will do when he comes. And more than that, in fact, a statement of what God actually has accomplished when he came. And so Micah though it has uh, numerous promises which are relevant to Christmas, which we'll get to in a few weeks, um, it begins in a place that you might find strange this Sunday morning um, as we begin the season of Advent. But it is, in fact, the perfect place to begin as Advent has at its heart this symbol that we participate in every single week of lighting a candle in the midst of darkness. In fact, we'll gather on Christmas Eve and light candles in a darkened room. The idea at the heart of Micah is that darkness has consumed the land. Darkness has consumed all the peoples. And that darkness has warranted judgment. But as that judgment has come, light has come with it. And so, um, we're going to be spending the next few weeks in the book of Micah. And I want to begin by kind of setting up a framework through which you can read the book of Micah and try to understand uh, where the whole book is going. Um, the first thing that you'll see is that Micah is writing um, during the time of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, um, during the kings of Judah. Um, and that Micah, as uh, a number of the prophets in, um, in the Old Testament, uh, they're usually sent to one or the other, either to Israel and Samaria um, or to Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, it's also something to keep in mind, not to get confused about. In the New Testament, when you come to the word Samaria, um, that is usually referring to a, a whole region um, of Israel, the northern region uh, of Israel. In the Old Testament, um, Samaria was the capital city for the divide, in the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, Samaria, S- Samaria is the northern counterpart to Jerusalem. Uh, when the kingdom is divided after Solomon's reign, um, Israel uh, goes to the north um, as well as the ten kingdoms. Um, Judah stays to the south, Jerusalem being the capital city of Judah, um, and Samaria becomes the capital city of Israel and the northern tribes. Um, The framework for the book of Micah is it follows three cycles of three. 
Um, the whole book is, is broken into these repeated cycles that continue through the whole book. It begins with a word of warning, which is where we are this morning. Um, it then moves to a declaration of judgment. And then it always ends those cycles with a declaration of hope. I mean, that hope comes through and alongside the judgment. In other words, the judgment and the hope are not really two separate things, but this is one of the key themes that develops in the book of Micah, is that as judgment comes, hope comes as well. As judgment comes, salvation comes as well. And this is um, something that it's hard for us modern minds to get around. Um, And yet this is the repeated theme throughout all of the prophets, um, is that somehow, in some glorious fashion, in some wise fashion, God comes, and when he comes, he brings judgment, and he brings salvation, and they occur simultaneously. And so in the book of Micah, we're going to see the exact same thing, um, even in this text, as it uh, lays out a pretty bleak declaration of warning um, leading into the judgments of chapter 2. It is in the midst of those warnings, those warnings of judgment, going to begin to lay out or give us clues for how the salvation will come precisely through the midst of those judgments. So let's look at the text and see what's happening. First, look at verse two. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. So he's speaking specifically concerning, in verse one, Samaria and Jerusalem, but God is calling all of the earth to witness it. Um, The idea here is God is now standing in front of all of the nations of the earth and he's declaring a judgment on two very, very specific peoples. The people of Israel and the people of Judah. The city of Samaria and the city of Jerusalem. There is something at the heart of judgment, of God's judgments of evil, which are a way of vindicating his name among all the nations of the earth. This is a repeated theme throughout the entirety of the Bible. You see it um, uh, all the way in the book of Revelation, this, this idea that God demonstrates his righteousness, he demonstrates his glory, he demonstrates his power, he, he, he puts it on display for all the nations of the earth by, by, uh, by focusing that judgment in particular places and particular times in history. Now the book of Revelation tells us that most of the nations see those judgments and dismiss them. And throughout history, in real historical places and times, the judgment of God has come. The most obvious one being 70 AD in Jerusalem. A destruction that was promised by Jesus, looked forward to by the apostles, and then it happens. And when it happens, um, the, the intended reaction of all the nations of the earth is to see the apostasy that's judged and to to see in that judgment the glory of God, the majesty of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God, and therefore to repent. And yet, as it's declared in the book of Revelation, yet they still did not repent from their sins and their idolatries and their wickedness. And so even there, the promise of judgment and the enactment of that judgment in history is intended to be a means of mercy. Um, That God doesn't destroy all of the earth and all wickedness all at once, but rather um, pours out his judgment in isolated places and in isolated ways in history. That that judgment is intended to lead to repentance. That judgment is intended to lead people to flee from their sin 
and to cling to Christ. And yet again and again and again, humanity refuses to listen, refuses to see the severity of God's judgment, the folly of sin, and to cling to Christ. It's important too to see here as he calls all the nations to pay attention, to listen. By the way, all three cycles begin with a call to listen. Um, It's translated here, hear, and pay attention in verse two. Um, But all three cycles begin with that same Hebrew word, this same call um, for people to pay attention and to listen to what God is saying to the prophet Micah. Be remiss not to just consider for a moment Again, what is God like? Oftentimes we too quickly rush past some of the most obvious statements in scripture. But I would hope that we would stop this morning and consider that that the Lord God is a witness. And the Lord God is in his holy temple. And the Lord God is a God who comes out of his place, his holy temple, And he comes down and he treads upon the high places of the earth. And when he treads on these high places, they melt under him. Before we consider what all of those images mean, consider first that God sits on his throne in his holy temple, witnessing all the nations of the earth. We do not worship a tribal God, a private deity. We don't worship a God that just lives between your heart and your head somewhere. We don't simply worship a God who who is some sort of pietistic um, religious figure um, that provides merely personal comfort um, uh, and, and some sort of personal moral guide. We worship the God of all the earth. The God that we gathered before this morning is the one who sits enthroned above and beyond all the nations of the earth. He doesn't live just in your little heart, providing comfort here or there or moral rules here and there. He judges the nations. All the nations are accountable to him. All answer to him. None on the last day will be able to say, oh, but we were Buddhists. You misunderstand. We, we weren't subject to your rules because we were, we, we were Muslims. Uh, we weren't subject to your rules. We, we were a secular democracy. No, all the nations of the earth are subject to God who sits enthroned above all of it. So this prophecy begins by reestablishing the throne of God over all the peoples everywhere forever. And he comes to tread down the high places. He comes to melt the mountains. He comes to split open the valleys. And so what What is God doing? And the text kind of lays out for us uh, some images, some clues, um, and some just blatant declarations of what the problem is. 
Um, as we look at the history of Israel as it unfolds, particularly in First and Second Kings, um, one of the things that you see immediately after Solomon's reign is the kingdom is divided. And so the kingdom goes uh, north to, and roots itself in Samaria, um, and Judah retains Jerusalem and the temple that was built by Solomon. Um, one of the political problems that was immediately uh, the, the northern kings are immediately aware of is they didn't simply want to set up a kind of a, a new political order um, and uh, they, they recognized the problem that if they just had their kind of governmental authority rooted uh, in Samaria and everyone was still going to Jerusalem uh, to worship at the temple, um, that was going to create, uh, that, that religious problem was going to create political problems for them. It's so one of the very first things that happens in Samaria um, is, is uh, the king there has two golden calves built and establishes kind of a new order for worship um, in Israel so that uh, his people didn't need to go to Jerusalem, didn't need to submit themselves uh, to the king in Jerusalem, what was going on in Jerusalem. Um, and instead, they could worship God in Samaria um, and avoid doing what God actually commanded his people to do, which was to gather at the temple. So almost from the very, very beginning, uh, Samaria and Israel and the northern kingdom is corrupted by the worship of idols. It was part of their very founding, it was part of their founding story, and it was who Israel, um, the northern kingdom, was. And so this idolatry rooted itself in Samaria, um, and, and so the whole history of Samaria, in fact, um, as you work your way through Second Kings, um, you will not find a good king um, in the entire history of the northern kingdom. You'll find the occasional king uh, who would kind of get wise to certain things and listen to a prophet um, and stop doing something bad, but none that dedicated themselves and the people to the wholehearted and faithful worship of Yahweh. Um, but in the south, um, you had a mixture. Um, you had some good kings, some bad kings. You had kings like Josiah, noble, righteous kings that led the people in repentance and led the people to worship Yahweh. But you had this, this sort of um, rooted all the way down into the bones cancer um, in Samaria, uh, and there was no hope. And then you had this kind of mixture of going back and forth between good kings and bad kings uh, down south near Jerusalem, centered in Jerusalem. Um, but then trouble arises. And so you'll notice here, um, there's several uh, cities and towns mentioned, uh, but one of them in particular is Lachish. Um, this city is named in this text, if you look at it. Um, in verse, uh, there in verse 13, harness the steeds to the chariots inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Lachish becomes this kind of pivotal city. It lies really between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it was the place through which the cancer, which was all the way in the bones of Israel, began to spread its way into Judah. And the problem in Samaria, as it's laid out quite particularly and clearly in this text, is idolatry. They worshipped false gods. Um, judgment comes upon this kingdom because they worshipped pagan idols. What's interesting is the sin of Jerusalem, it says here, is the sin of Israel, but it looked different in Jerusalem. 
In Jerusalem, there was maintained the temple. There was maintained most of the feast days. Um, there was, a, a, particularly with certain kings, um, and there was this constant blending together of the paganism of Samaria. The paganism of the northern kingdoms uh, began to infiltrate uh, the, the, the worship of God in, in Jerusalem. And so alongside the worship of God, they maintained the high places. And at the high places, um, that was where groves were built. And sometimes they would, uh, they would worship Yahweh there. Um, and oftentimes they would worship the pagan gods, the pagan deities of the surrounding nations, including the pagan gods of Samaria. You had out and out idolatry, paganism all the way down in the northern kingdom. And you had this syncretism in the south, this blending together of the worship of Yahweh, the faithful worship of Yahweh, um, mixed together with um, the, the, the faithful or unfaithful worship of pagan idols. And the, the bridge between those, two, um, between those two corruptions was Lachish. So God says here, as we consider the question, what does the judgment of God do, is that it melts the high places. It's interesting as you um, study the geography of Samaria, it sat on an oval hillside, approximately 300 feet up from the valley below, um, and there were no immediately immediate hillsides near it. It was a, a prime place to set up a defensive position, um, a place to kind of uh, root down against all attacks. Samaria was the, um, the place of the, the great religious political projects of the kings of Omri, including Ahab and Jezebel. And yet their wickedness invades Jerusalem such that um, around Jerusalem springs up a number of high places um, where the, the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem would go and worship false gods. And so there is a corruption of worship and there is just flat out false pagan worship. Both of those things. And God stands and doesn't give either a pass. He says that the sins of Jerusalem are the sins of Samaria. But before we look more closely at some of these towns, how much does this have to do with our own day? I would contend this speaks directly to the sins of the American evangelical church. The sins of a secular pagan culture have become the sins of an evangelicalism corrupted by a kind of secular paganism that shaped what we do and how we worship. See it every single time you hear someone saying, now that we've discovered this, cite any unbelieving secular source, we now know really what Genesis 1 was about. Now that we know this, some gender-confusing philosophy, we now know what Ephesians 5 means. It talks about husbands and wives and their relationship in marriage or the way that the hierarchy or leadership of the church should be structured. Any place you see now that we know this about the nature of justice, 
Now we actually know what Romans 8 is all about. Any place you see in the modern American church a kind of smuggling into it, a redefinition of what the Bible says in terms acceptable to and respected by paganism and secularism, what you can be sure of is what's happening in Jerusalem and the high places surrounding Jerusalem has taken root in our souls, our ways of thinking, and the worship of the church. Omica speaks directly to our day. It is a word of warning, a devastating warning. You see a list of cities beginning in verse 10. And there's kind of a play on words happening uh, that you'd miss if you don't know what some of these uh, cities, that what their names actually mean. Um, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. Uh, there's um, some thought that this is a reference back to 1 Samuel, the very end of 1 Samuel, uh, where David, um, uh, at the death of Jonathan and Saul, proclaims, don't let this word get out. Don't, don't spread it abroad anywhere. You have this, this city, Bethlehem-Ephra. Um, this is the city of um, dust, would be the, the translation, or dust town, um, and they're commanded here to roll in the dust. Um, you have Shafir, Sef- um, which is the town of beauty, the town of, uh, the town of um, it's adorned in beauty and glory. Um, they're said here that you will go forth in nakedness and shame. The word Zanan uh, is uh, a declaration to go forth or to go out, and they're said here, you will not come out. The lamentation of Bethazel, or the bitterness of, of Bethazil, um, as this, uh, as they talk about um, anxiously hoping for and waiting for um, the good that's to come. Maroth, the bitter town, um, they're waiting anxiously for good, but instead they will see merely disaster. Um, these towns are all grouped uh, in that same area as Lakesh, uh, which is between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. It sits um, really as a, a prime place for shepherding. Um, in between the two kingdoms, and he's saying this, this whole region, centered on the town of Lakesh, uh, served as a bridge between the paganism um, of the northern kingdom to the corruption of the southern kingdom. So what does God's judgment do? It says the, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And these high places will melt under him. And this phrase, high places and these mountains, refers specifically to the places um, where this idolatry, this pagan worship was practiced, both in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom. What God's judgment does is melt the high places. What God's judgment does is topple the mountains, the places of false worship. And where do these gods, where do these judgments fall? How do they come to all the earth? They come in every single place where man would refuse to worship God as God has commanded. They come to every single place 
where we would worship false gods instead of the true God. They come to every single place where we would try our best with our powerful modern intellects to blend together secular insights with the clarity of the word of God. God comes to melt the high places. And it's interesting, an observation I would make, his judgments destroy every place of human pride, every place of human self-righteousness, every place where we would lift ourselves up to God through our own clear thinking, through our own self-righteousness, through our own attempts of justice, God has declared war on every human presumption. False religion and idolatry, whether it be Islam or secular humanism or Buddhism or a weird, twisted, Americanized Christianity, always amounts to one thing. It's not complicated. It always amounts to an attempt to find a way to elevate ourselves, to prove our own righteousness, to prove our own self-worth. It always amounts an attempt to deny the reign of God and the authority of God and the righteousness of God in an attempt to vindicate ourselves by redefining the nature of righteousness, by redefining the nature of worship, by redefining the nature of justice, by redefining what goodness is. As you just consider the cultural upheaval of the last three years, The pattern that you'll see running over and over and over, um, uh, whether it was the BLM riots in 2020 or or it was the um, the, the COVID insanity and all the the virtue signaling that accompanied that, or or whether it's the fact that last Sunday at least, you could walk out and sit on our steps and hear a massive crowd on the steps of the Capitol building um, yelling genocidal chants from the river to the sea. Don't those people know what they're shouting? So what fuels all of it? A constant attempt to redefine the terms by which God has defined righteousness in the world to terms that we can accept, terms that we can measure up to, terms by which we can stand and say, behold my righteousness, behold my goodness, behold my glory. construct for ourselves our own high places to make much of us to make much of our own ingenuity to make much of our own righteousness to make much of our own glory and into that world God says here you peoples all of you Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. and They will melt under him. And the valleys will be split open like wax 
before the fire. All the corruption in this earth is born of our attempts to be God. To be more glorious than God, to be more righteous than God, to be more just than God. To refuse God's word and instead be gods of our own. And the promise of God in Micah's day and in our own is he comes to melt all of it. To throw down every single bit of it. So where's the good news in that? Happy Christmas, by the way, or Advent. How does this prophecy get worked out? It is terrifying and glorious. How are those high places melted? Perhaps you're sitting here today and you're saying, okay, that sounds terrible. How do I not get melted? Um, how, How do I be saved from this toppling down on high? First, there's a clue in this text that I want us to see. It points forward to where things are going in later chapters. And it's this strange mention of Agilom. Look at verse 15. It says, I will, bring, I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mereshah, and the glory of Israel shall come to Agilom. We've just been in 1 Samuel, so this is a wonderful and easy bridge to build for you. David, God's chosen king, the one that would bring salvation to Israel, as he's fleeing from destruction, he's fleeing um, from King Saul, he begins to gather people at the cave of Agilom, a stronghold, a place of salvation. And so there's a clue here that says, hey, the glory of Israel, the glory of those who belong to Yahweh, those who haven't compromised with idolatry, those who haven't tried to blend together unbelief and belief, that people will go to the place where David was. They'll find safety where the son of David is. How do you avoid getting melted? (laughs) How, in fact, maybe a better way to put it, How are the high places in every single human heart melted? Well, you must flee. And there's only one place to flee. It's the dwelling place of the son of David. And this is, in fact, the end of all high places. The son of David was born in Bethlehem, as we're going to find out just in a few chapters. This king came and he lived a perfect life before God Almighty. If anyone was worthy to stand before the Father, it was and only was Jesus. And Jesus comes and he goes to a cross where he dies. Now hear this, the death of every high place in the human heart is the cross. 
The cross is the end of all human presumption. The cross is the end of all human self-righteousness. The cross is the end of every attempt to redefine or reformat religion such that I can be the righteous one. I can be the just one. It comes and melts idolatry. The cross demonstrates what all our paganism amounts to. A bloody, horrific death. And so Christ comes and dies in the place of all who will flee to him. All who will put their hope in him. All who will put um, their righteousness in him. All who will cling to him and to his word to define the nature of justice and worship and righteousness. All who will put down their wokeness with all its forms, who will put away their self-righteousness in all its forms, to put away all their ingenious redefinitions of the word of God and cling to hide in the cave of Agilom, to hide in the glory in the beauty of the sun. Let's pray and prepare for communion.